0: There's a lot of areas that you study in in college that won't apply in whatever business you go into, but the general knowledge of business applies to everything.
1: Excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality. These are the values the Sam M. Walton College of Business explores in education, business, and the lives of people we meet every day. I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Walton College And welcome to the Be Epic Podcast. I have with me today, Zach Wiegert, managing principal and founder at Goldenrod Capital Advisors. Thank you so much, Zach, for taking time to visit with me today. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely, Matt. Look forward to it.
1: Zach, you know, your background is pretty remarkable, Um, You formed Goldenrod back in 2005, so you've been doing this for quite a while, but I'd like to back up and start to talk a little bit about your previous experience. I know you had been in commercial real estate investing and developing for 10 years before that, but before that you had been in the NFL for 12 years and you had played for the Rams, the Jaguars, the Texans. I mean, just being in the NFL for 12 years is, is something uh, you must be tough but you also played football at the University of Nebraska and you uh, were a part of the undefeated University of Nebraska National Championship football team back in 1994 and I remember it well because <laughs> I went to Penn State
0: oh yeah
1: yeah Uh no, for
0: Kerry Collins and Kerry Collins Kajana Carter I know all those guys
1: yeah But also last year, you were inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame, which less than 0.02% of all college football players and coaches have been inducted into. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And and of course, now you have led the acquisition and development of billions of uh, dollars in commercial real estate. You're currently overseeing a multi-billion dollar fund, so you've got you've got a lot going on and a terrific <clears throat> background. I'd like to start just a little bit with some very basics. I mean, you have an uncommon experience you had an uncommon experience in college and I should mention you majored in economics, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's a demanding major, especially if you're playing football. Did you find that to be demanding? and did you you must have enjoyed it, or you wouldn't have majored in this? Yeah, day.
0: I you know, I think economics is something that it's it's like you speak the language or you don't. I mean, it's, it's supply and demand and and you know the the more scarce something is, and the more people want it, the more it costs. And so that's kind of how my mind works. I'm kind of a mathematical, I can remember numbers forever. I have a hard time with names. It's kind of how my mind works. So uh, it was a good fit for me. And I I think it's done me well in in my whole life because it is really the basics that applies to everything in business. So
1: it really is. It's such an important, especially getting the basics down, like microeconomics, macroeconomics, money and banking, Mm -hmm. Once you have that down, you can apply it to so many different fields.
0: It, it's really human nature. It applies to everything, really, not just in the business. I mean, it you know, like you, you see people waiting in line for an iPhone. It's, it's it's what it is. They charge what they want because that many people want them. They only make so many at a time. So it applies to more in, in real life than people think.
1: Absolutely. You worked for 10 years in commercial real estate before you started your company. Sure. Did that experience in college of having a lot going on help you learn how to manage a lot of different kinds of activities?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, I guess a big thing I try to get across, especially our, our younger employees, is is you just, you know, you, you make a schedule and you set your schedule. And when you have free time, get it done, procrastinating. It'll be there waiting for you at some point. So you might as well just get it done. And what i found is, is, you know, is as you set your schedule, if you just do it and attack the problems and get them fixed and done, the more free time you have. So, uh, sitting around knowing that homework's waiting for you or knowing you have to go to practice, you just do it and do your best and and, and move on. And, uh, I think that applies in everything in business. You know, now we have projects in like, 13 different States and, you know, uh, uh, so what I do on a regular basis as the, as the general partners, a little bit different. Than I did when I first started, where I was managing all, all portions of a project, and now I'm just in on the major decisions, um, you know, structuring deals, things like that. Because there's just only so many hours in a day, so it's, it it really gets into time management.
1: It's so true. Having a schedule is so helpful, and then addressing problems as you said as they come up, rather than just sitting on them and Hoping they disappear.
0: Yeah, they found they just don't go away. They just actually usually the longer you love sit, the worse they get. And so, um, you know, our big thing with our meetings now and and uh, in, in football, too, when you have great coaches, it's the same thing. And I, I use a lot of those lessons I learned playing sports to, to is You know, you you fix the problems. If things are going well, that's what you expect to happen. You, you look at film to fix the problems. You look at you go to meetings with your with your people in your company and say, like, no, no, tell me the bad stuff. If you don't tell me, I assume it's good. So um, and you know, people always laugh. They say, Well, what's your your job on a daily basis? I go, problem solver. That's what I do on a daily basis, is fix problems. So that that's the best way to describe it is is that, you know, if you and that applies to anything in life. For your listeners, is you know, if there's an issue, the best you can do is is solve it as quickly as possible because most often just disappear.
1: You know, this idea of the films you look at in football to see where the problems occurred, and in meetings, your your metaphor to you know using a meeting to review what were the problems. You know, some people are more inclined to share those kinds of things than others. How do you get your team to? to really get into that groove of sharing the problems. Yeah.
0: Yeah, It's interesting. It's kind of a learning process. You know, we'll have people managing specific parts of the business or specific projects and something will come up. There'll be a change order in construction or, or something will come up and the more inexperienced people, at least in our company, will say, Oh, well, I've got contingency money. I'll make it up somewhere else. Or, I can fix this on my own or this and that. And obviously you want self starters that are willing to go attack the problems themselves and fix them. But we kind of have a rule. Like if you don't bring it to the, to the meeting, you own it. So it's your problem until you share it with the meeting. And so I I think I have found that when you're in a room of other uh, smart people, if if the problem is brought up in a setting like that, there may be someone that has experience with that specific type of an issue before that can comment on it that can really help you solve your problem. So, yeah, it, absolutely. You know, a lot of people, you don't want to come to the meeting and, and admit you have an issue with something. But, you know, the best we can, we try to get people is like, it's your issue until you bring it up. And so the sooner you bring it up, the sooner we can get it solved and move on. I mean, there's always going to be problems that come up in any business. It's just the sooner you can fix the better. It's like football. Do you have on film, if you have a weak part on your offense or defense, the other team is going to watch film and expose it until you fix
1: it. This idea of exposing problems when they occur and then trying to solve them as a group. It's like as an individual, you can use your knowledge and your capabilities or you can use your network. Your, your teammates. Right. And if you, as you expand, even if you have a very high IQ and very competent, you get a few other people involved, you've already exceeded that easily.
0: Right, right. Especially when your team has people with other core competencies. You know, we have in house legal, in house accounting, tax. So there's no one that can be a master of all those things design, construction. I mean, we have all these people that specifically what they do all day. And a lot of times it's just, you know, they were on another project and experienced something similar. They were in a meeting, heard how someone else fixed that problem before. So a lot of it is just experience. And you could read all the books and be the smartest person in the world, and they don't want to fix it because you've never experienced it.
1: So you've, you, you had been doing some of your own investing and developing for 10 years, and then you started Goldenrod Capital Advisors. How is Goldenrod set up? Do you have Limited partners as investors and are you set yeah, up like a regular yeah. fund, alternative investment fund? Yeah,
0: yeah. So we're a registered investment advisor, SEC registered investment advisor, uh, which only like 3% of real estate funds are because you don't have to technically register, but mm-hmm. all of our numbers are audited. and we want to do that just kind of separate ourselves from our competition. Uh, you know our all of our returns are audited and so you can rely on our numbers when we give them to people. And then, yeah, we're just a, a limited partnership. I'm the general partner of the fund, and we, all the investors are limited partners. Uh, you know, everyone gets their pro rata share of depreciation, everyone gets their pro rata share of returns, distributions, all that. And um, it's really a central US focused fund. Uh, we've always kind of done business from Salt Lake to Atlanta, Omaha to Dallas. We have offices in Omaha, Dallas, and Atlanta. And um in house we have about fifty two people uh that work in house. And I say in house because if you counted all the people at the property management level at the different properties, uh it'd be hundreds, but um but that's that's uh, and we've we kicked off our first fund in two thousand seventeen and now we're actually gonna have our first opening on our fourth fund here in July.
1: What is your waterfall structure in terms of like two percent and then yeah, yeah, it's it's
0: pretty typical. Uh, I would tell people, and I was just meeting with some potential investors, so it's um, basically return 100% return of capital to the investors, and then they get a 7% preferred return on their money the, the entire time until they get it all back, and then after that, it's an, uh, 80% to them, 20% to us. But the difference between us and a lot of funds is our waterfall structures on the whole portfolio so in a, any given fund we could have 12 to 20 properties and um, all those properties have to perform above that preferred return on the entire portfolio a lot of funds are set up where they do a waterfall per project and i tell investors to be careful of that because obviously the very profitable stuff they'll sell early And then they have what's called a catch-up, where on the back end, they're supposed to be able to claw back monies they paid preferred if the other properties don't perform. And you see it time and time again. You have a fund with 20 properties. They sell off the first 10, make a bunch of carried interest on the waterfall, and then the other properties don't perform and sit there and drag down the returns. And then they have to go back after to get their waterfall back. So um, ours is very investor-friendly, and I'm a large investor in my own funds as well. So I'm as motivated for returns as our investors as anyone. So
1: That's great. You know, after you had been investing, doing your own investing for 10 years in your own development, to create a fund like this, you had to learn a lot, I would think. You'd have to learn about private placement memorandum and the limited partner agreements and all of this kind of Absolutely. thing. How did right. you go through that? Subscription agreements, learning?
0: yeah.
1: How did you learn Yeah, that? so...
0: I'll give you just a, a little bit of history. So I, so I got drafted in 1995. In 1996, I started doing real estate. I liked the idea of physical assets, something tangible. and Because I always said, well, even if existing company in there, you still have a physical asset that has value. I mean, there's only so much land. There's only so many great locations. So I always kind of liked the idea that there was something there where like a stock to me was air. Um, and so that's why I originally got into investing. And then when I retired in 07, I had already acquired pretty good portfolio of assets over the time I played. And then, um, from 2007 until our first fund kicked off in 17, we did, I don't know, about a billion and four of of real estate projects before we even got in the funds. So, um, in 2015, I had a conversation with my partner and, um, and he, was, he had said, you know, they have a family office that's large and that they uh, would like to put money into invest with me as a fund because they're not really active business investors any longer. And so I spent two years going to New York, San Francisco, all over and looking at different types of funds and structures. And like you said, you know, limited partner agreement, drafts, subscription agreements, all the things you had to do to do that. And, you know, just kind of found like, I didn't like funds that only focused in a single asset class. So you'll see a lot of funds that only acquire apartments. Well, in the last five years, it's really hard to acquire apartments and make any kind of return, you know, so that, that didn't make sense to me. I looked at funds that only did development, ground up development, which prior, prior when I retired until 2017, we primarily did ground up development work. And we just found that was the highest return on our investment. And um, that didn't work because people like to get a distribution. And so there's such a lag from the time you start construction, complete construction, stabilize, and then put out any cash flows. It's a long lag. So basically got in a fund that made sense. If you're going to build a diversified portfolio for someone, you do a mix of development and acquisition. And then, you know, you'd be diversified in different product types. So office. Uh, multifamily, industrial, medical—all those which we've done—all those assets prior, and then that gives you the ability to diversify portfolio and in, in, in different markets, uh, different product types, and in, you know acquisition, which creates cash flow, and development, which creates growth of value. So. Basically, you know, any one of our funds is its own diversified portfolio of different asset classes, different locations, construction, you know, ground-up construction and uh, acquisition.
1: A lot of NFL players, I'm told i i don't I don't know this firsthand. A lot of times, they don't necessarily use their income as wisely as you did. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'd like to think I've done a good job managing my income. I, I wish where I got drafted and how long I played and how many games I started, I make what they make now. But I can't complain. It was a lot back then. So, um, But, yeah, I, I'd like to think I've done a good job growing growing my, my assets since I, I retired. I had a, a one of the smartest real estate gentlemen I'd, I'd ever done business with said, you'll make way more doing real estate. You, can, you just have a real knack for it now. So I was like, yeah, he knows, Scott, know what my salary is playing football. And uh, he's, he's right. It's been, it's been good. And it's just, you know, it's so compounding with real estate and such a great um, after tax asset to be in. So,
1: so Zach, what are some examples of projects you've learned a lot from?
0: I'd have to say I probably learned something on every project. Um, You know, as time has gone on, I went from when I first retired to, you know, Doing the architect contract, construction contract, financing, oversaw the you know the construction management of it myself. Did the draws, uh, you know, every single phase of projects. When you're managing two or three investments at a time, you can do that. Uh, to being more on the structuring, finance, um, the you know big picture wise, uh, I always had a real really like getting into design. I always thought I was, I, I should have been an architect at some point in my life. I kind of see things in 3D. And so of of getting into the design construction piece is still really fun for me. I don't get as much time doing it as I used to, but I still weigh on in every design and, and construction of our, any projects we do quite a bit. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's like we talked about earlier, you learn from, from failures. I, I found what we're good at and You know, we need to stay focused on that. I'd say my biggest, you know, bad investments, and these were my own investments before I had a fund. Um, You know, everyone was building houses in Scottsdale, Phoenix area, and we thought we'd get them to do a single family development and build, you know, buy buy an area, put in all the improvements and sell lots off, and, you know, over a 10-year period, we got all of our money back, but it was, I would not call that a win by any means, you know. Um, another big retail development, we thought they'd let us build basically to what our plans were, we submitted to the city and then they came back saying, no, no, we only want, we don't want apartments. We want this. We want this, want this. That was, you know, hey, when you're doing your due diligence on a property, you better make sure that the municipality is going to agree with your plan before you close on the land. Um, that's a big lesson of, uh, it's not, nothing's done until it's done <laughs> and signed. So that's a big lesson to learn. Uh, people just you know, taking someone's word for it never seems to work. Um, and then um, we had a unique deal. Uh, a bank actually uh, got taken over by the FDIC, and it's you know it was in Lincoln, or you know my my t- college town. So I thought I knew it well. And I said, like, we're buying this so cheap from the FDIC. There's no way it can't make money. And this was a lesson you learn in real estate about. Um, there's certain locations, certain buildings and towns that just have a bad reputation about them. And you you can't you it's hard to get over that, you know, and that was one of them. I was like, I, you know, people had a bad taste in their mouth about the bank going under and how that happened. It was hard to get tenants to take it. And all three of my examples, we ended up fine. But, you know, an IRR on getting your money back over 10 years isn't a very good return. So. I, t- I count those as the big losses, but those were three totally different situations and you know, they didn't turn out the way you'd hoped, but um, they're all huge lessons as far as for future stuff and other projects we've done. Just, you know, learning your lessons on, you know, getting all your I's dotted, T's cross, stay in your lane, don't get into single family homes if you don't build single family homes and you know, just because it sounds like a great idea and there is stigmatisms with certain areas and towns or, you know, a lot of times that bridge is a barrier in a town. And on this side of the bridge, people just don't cross over this side. And, you know, places like Pittsburgh, there's boroughs all over and people shop in that borough. They don't go to the other borough. I mean, it's you just got to learn. And, and that's why real estate is such a local thing. You got to know, know the local partners to make it work.
1: Zach, to uh, close our conversation out, what message do you wish— every graduating college student could hear?
0: I, I would say, and and this is just kind of my personality, so it probably weighs more on me, is passion. Have passion for what you do. Um, and I say that. It, you're, you may take some jobs that weren't your dream job to start, but you never know when the opportunity is going to knock. If you have passion for what you do, you could be a waiter at wait tables in a restaurant, and you... Meet up, you wait on the right person and you do it with a smile on your face, with passion that could turn into something. As you go through life, it's amazing how many times you run into people that you met before in a position you never thought they were going to be in. And so one, you know, do things with a smile on your face, be truly nice to people. But people can tell if you're passionate about what you do. And to me, all the people I know that are successful are passionate about what they do on a daily basis.
1: Boy, that's so true. I've definitely observed that. You you can take something that seems pretty
0: simple and be very passionate about it, and it can turn into something big.
1: Well, Zach, thank you so much for taking time to visit with us. Really appreciate it, and it's a pleasure to get to know you.
0: Very nice to get to know you as well, Matt. I appreciate it. On
1: behalf of the Sam M. Walton College of Business, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us for another engaging conversation. You can subscribe by going to your favorite podcast service and searching Be Epic," B-E-E-P-I-C.